0: Hi everybody, welcome to the next episode of Pop Culture Double Date, and this week we are joined by Anija, Gerald, Maggie, and myself, Darren, and once again we've watched this week's episode of Westworld, and we are going to talk about it. Um, So, hello everybody, as usual. Hello! Hi! Um, um, so, I, I think what we're going to try this week is that we're just going to basically recap the episode, and, you know, as we recap the episode, people will jump in with their thoughts. So, I thought this was an interesting sort of bridging episode this week. Um, it felt a little bit Game of Thronesy. like <laughs> I'm going to put it out there before Jez does, because, you know, there were so many sort of disparate sort of storylines that seem to be slowly coalescing, but the opening scene of this episode is, um, you know, the classic Dolores sitting down with Bernard or Arnold or whoever it is that's sitting there, right? And, um... They're having the conversation and then all of a sudden there's a role reversal and you realize that Dolores is actually in control of the situation and she is the one who has um, host control over the Arnold-Bernard host. Um, and then she says, very interestingly, um, she questions something that Bernard and Arnold is saying about um, and it's linked to the theme of this week's episode, which is around choosing your own fate. So it's a should or could, um, like you know, I, I think Bernard says something around along the lines of whether he should do something or whether he could do something. And Dolores corrects him, right? And she says something about how she is testing him for fidelity, which obviously immediately rings back to the Delos episode where we know that you know that word fidelity pops up again and again so the question is what fidelity is she actually testing for i thought this was a super intriguing opening scene what's everybody else's thoughts who wants to who wants to jump in
1: I'll jump in. I thought it was great. It was so good to see Dolores sort of turn the tables because we've seen her being interviewed by Arnold so many times that it was just awesome to see that shift when she um, sort of corrects him. Um, I think that this scene raises uh, the four W's of when, where, who and why. So when is this happening? Is this happening in a different timeline? The past? Is it Is it current? Like, when in the story is this happening? Where is it? Is it happening in the Matrix? Like, is it it happening in that in that alternate reality um, that seems to be something you can access through the cradle? Um, Who is this? Who is it? Is it actually Dolores, or is it Ford acting through Dolores? Is Mm. it uh, Bernard? Is it Arnold? Is it uh, Bernard? Is it it, like who is it? is it is it just a is it is it Teddy like dressed up as Bernard um, to, to to in the hopes of being able to fool the masses? Who knows, and why? Like why is it happening? So what is the fidelity that's being um, tested here? Because obviously that makes it sound like they have uploaded. Um, a real person's consciousness into the Bernard um, body, um, and the, the person who it, it would be it would be Arnold because Deloria, Dolores is testing his fidelity to what Arnold su- must have said to her. Um, or is it just a play on the word fidelity? And is she um, is she really just testing his loyalty, or, or, or what's going on there? Um, so I thought it was a great opener. Yeah,
2: Max.
3: I was just thinking as well, I totally agree with everything that you said um, and it, it made me um, want more instantly after that scene um, ended and then they never went back to it. So, at, you know, by the end of the episode, I was kind of crying out for, but why? Yeah, they why. teased us. <laughs> yeah, they did. Um, yeah, and... The other question I had as well, which has now completely slipped my mind after I was thinking about it, uh, Gerald. Do you want to step in while I rack my brain for that question? Sure,
4: sure, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, look, the, the first, the first thing to note about this scene is the aspect ratio in which it's shot. I think it's a sort of it's got it's got letterboxing, so it's I think maybe even a twenty-one by nine Jerry, aspect ratio. absolutely. So the,
0: that letterboxing is the Matrix, right? Because later when yeah, they the, shoot in the Matrix, true. it's
4: letterboxed, yeah. Is that right? So when you're in the cradle, yeah, you, you, you've got the letterbox, and it seems to suggest that this is this is happening in the in, in whatever whatever it is that we're seeing down in the world of the of the cradle, um, the alternate backup reality that's stored on the on the servers. Um, so there's that. We get that visual clue. I think the um, the notion of testing for fidelity perhaps suggests that as running in parallel with the attempt to bring Jim Delos back to life by implanting his consciousness, in a host version of himself, perhaps as a pet project or a side project, um, Robert Ford is seeking to bring back to life um, his former business partner, Arnold.
0: Yes. So I I think this scene ties... So we might as well just talk about the last scene as well, right? Because the beginning scene and the ending scene are kind of like... they're linked, right? They're clearly they're clearly linked. I mean, you just talked about the letterboxing, like the because immediately, I remember like immediately after Mags and I watched this, we one of the things we talked about was well, is that opening scene sitting in the matrix, right? And I didn't notice actually that the opening scene was letterboxed, but now that you speak talk about it, I did notice that the final matrix scene was letterbox. So just so that everyone is aware, like the end of the episode, oh yeah, and I forgot to say that this is a spoilers episode, obviously, so I'm sorry if anybody was listening that didn't realize this well, is spoilers. <laughs> but this is a massive spoilers episode, so get out of here if it's swi- if you don't want spoilers. Anyway, so the end of the episode has, like, in more, more references to The Matrix. I mean, last week we had Maeve like, becoming Neo, and this week we have Bernard basically hard-plugging him, Bernard basically getting his head chopped, the top of his head chopped out, and getting his (laughs) brain... Well, it's true, right? The top of his head got sawn out, and he literally got it ported into the Matrix. Um, So that's that's how the episode ends, right? Elsie takes Bernard into the Cradle. Apparently the Cradle is, like, the place where all of the host's fundamental consciousnesses, kept, like their data, I guess, gets held. Yep. It's kind of like, so it's literally the Matrix, so the, I guess the sense is that it's kind of like where the host's um, identities dwell, and apparently there's some sort of significance in physically being there, and Bernard, being physically there, gets his uh, host brain taken out, and we realize that the host brain is not actually this, just the sort of white Container thing, but inside the white container thing is this brown ball, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And the brown ball is actually the host brain, and it's the brown ball that a few episodes ago, when we see the Bernard flashbacks when he's being controlled by Ford, we see that Bernard takes a brown ball out of um, the sort of the sort of the Delos site where everybody was killed. So clearly, Bernard took a some sort of artificial brain out of that site. And so Bernard at the cradle, he gets his brain taken out and plugged into the cradle. There he interfaces and he physically experiences the cradle as sweetwater. He walks into the saloon and there is Anthony Hopkins playing the piano. So Ford is clearly there. So yeah, so I um so yeah, I I, I think that like, my sense, having watched the episode, is that it feels like Dolores may not actually be Dolores, right? Like, I, I strongly get the sense that, like, it is for dressing up as Dolores in that role to test the Arnold-Bernard fidelity. Now, my question is, is do we think that it's Arnold or do we think it's bernard because is this part of the whole Trojan horse game? Well, Um,
4: if
1: it's Ford, then it's Arnold, I guess. And if it's Dolores, then it's Bernard.
4: (laughs) But I think, in in a sense, it doesn't make... It may not make much of a difference. It may be the case that um, the Bernard we see in episode after episode after episode is some sort of placeholder personality in the physical host form of Arnold um, that... Anthony Hopkins or Robert Ford has implanted whilst is still perfecting getting Arnold's consciousness back online. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's, there's obviously, um, it, it's easy to think that the scene we see in the opening of this episode is just an extension of the opening scene in the, uh, of the season as a whole. Hmm. But there seems to be a difference in the sense that when um, in the, in the opening se- scene of the season, Let's call him Arnold. Says not only that he's become, that he's afraid of what Dolores is becoming. He then sort of extends into a longer explanation of you know a dream that he's had, um, and of how you know he's I think he's on a blo- he's on a boat drifting away from a shore where Dolores is standing. Now that little monologue is absent in this scene. So my takeaway is that the opening scene. Of the season is probably something that actually happened between Dolores and Arnold. And what we're seeing in the opening scene of this episode is an attempt to recreate that scene as a means of testing mm. the fidelity of the mock Arnold consciousness that Ford is working on in the cradle. Mm. Mm.
3: But then, but why would he want to bring back Arnold? What's his incentive? If he's dead well, in person, but alive in the matrix, what's Ford's incentive to bring Arnold back?
2: Yeah, I don't see the yeah. incentive well, I
4: think I think I think he's haunted by Arnold's death. I think he, I think he feels a sense of I think he feels a sense of guilt. Because what we know from the first season is that um, Robert Ford has come around to the Arnold point of view concerning the consciousness and importance of these mm. robots. So he he's come around to the way Arnold sees these robots, and I think maybe um, he wants to he wants to restore Arnold so that you know together the two of them can revel in the glory of um, of the robot revolution. No,
1: I don't think there's an Arnold, and I definitely don't think Ford has come around to the view that these robots are have have like a value akin to what human beings have.
0: Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, I, yeah, I, I think this is this is the core discussion, right? This is why Ford. Is, we've talked about this. How Ford is ultra enigmatic because you're constantly second guessing whether he's a benevolent is benevolent god or a horrible god, right? Um, I got to say, I I probably fall in line with Anager on this one. Like, mm-hmm. I I I can't see Ford. He's a megal. He everything he does suggests that he's a bit of a megalomaniac, right? Like, um, like I, I can't. Like my sense. Is, you,
1: yeah. Go on.
0: Yeah. Like my sense. M- my sense is that there is a very, um, that whatever Ford is doing inside the Matrix, it is not altruistic. It is like my sense is that it is not driven by sort of some human like like some sort of emotional attachment or something like that my sense is that it's got to do with the fundamental like the business or something like practical right he wants to get some sort of outcome out of this right like there's a specific outcome that he's gunning for for the chaos in the park or luring all these people into like westworld I'm not exactly sure what that outcome is right now, but my sense is that he is using this opportunity as a way to extend... Well, firstly, to finally reach Godhood within the Matrix, which
2: Mm. I guess
0: he has, right? He's ascended to actual Godhood, right? He's Mm -hmm. shed his mortal shell, and he's ascended to Godhood in the Matrix. Yep. And then... And I think this game that is going on right now, like... When I saw him in that saloon at the end, my, immediately, my immediate thought was, okay, let's be clear now, right? Dolores is absolutely just running on the rails, right? She is yeah. being controlled by him and he's, contro- he's controlling her within the Matrix. He's moving all of the pieces. He's moving the man bla- in black around as well. He's manipulating those pieces, right, to get the outcome that he wants. Now, I don't know what the outcome that he wants is, but my sense is that it is not benevolent.
1: Mm. Yes, yeah. in that reckon, opening scene... Sorry, go
3: ahead, Max. Oh, no, no, I was just going to say, um, do you reckon he's trying, if that's the case, and he's Dolores in that scene, do you reckon he was doing that as a way of confusing Bernard-Arnold person um, because is he has a sense that he's actually becoming uh, like awakened somehow and so he's trying to confuse Bernard so that he... I guess, falls under his spell and control again, so to speak.
0: Look, I I would probably fall in line with Jerry's interpretation of that scene, which is that he knows that this is something that has, this is a documented thing. Because, like, remember the Delos episode, they keep playing through the same scene again and again for Fidelity to basically check the accuracy of that individual. So my Mm -hmm. sense is that Ford is clearly trying to check the accuracy of the Bernard Arnold consciousness that he's building, so that when he mm. puts him out into the world, it is undetectable, right? But yeah, this like the scene with Dolores is something that he can—it's like a baseline test that he can absolutely check against all the time because he has the records, right? Like, I mean, he might not have Arnold's brain, but he's got Dolores's brain and all of the previous file data, so he's got those records. Online, so it's kind of like he's got a set baseline that he's testing against, which is that scene that Bernard and Dolores, well Arnold or whoever it is, Jeffrey Wright, whoever he is playing, is um, experiencing with Dolores.
2: And so, here's
1: the thing: in that um, in that test in that fidelity testing scene, Ford slash Dolores is testing for fidelity with the Arnold who believed that it was his right to decide what the fate of the robots was going to be. You know, that's what Dolores says, right? He never, no, he never questioned whether it was his choice to make. He simply questioned which choice to make. So the idea that Ford is trying to bring back Arnold because he now sees the robots as akin to humans, no, he's trying to bring back someone who believed that, his 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 choice um, was what mattered when it came to these robots, not their own autonomy. Hmm. So that's why I just don't think Ford gives a crap about the robots.
4: There's also something that I want to that I just want to quickly observe, and that is that what is what is possible is that um, this exercise of bringing Arnold back to life via these te- fidelity tests in the cradle is. Merely Robert Ford um, perfecting the technology that Delos is trying is trying out to keep himself alive, and obviously um, Ford has perfected it because he's uploaded himself into the cradle, and he's working perfectly. He's not sort of um, he's not um, breaking down the way that um, Jim Delos, fake Jim Delos is, you know, lasting only seven days or fourteen days, etc. He's actually um, he's actually working out his his backup. And so mm. it may well be that the, the 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 attempt to resuscitate Arnold is no more than him just perfecting the technology in a way that is not accessible to Delos.
2: Mm,
0: mm. It, it, yeah, I, I think I think that that could be true. And I actually think so. We always know that Ford and Delos, the corporation, and I guess the the people behind Delos, like Ford, never really saw eye to eye with the organization, right? And. When I think about it, like, do you know, so a few weeks ago, Energy, you were talking about how the future world, you know, the future world movie that mm. you, know, you and Jerry were panning was like basically about robots going into the outside world, right? Is that, is that right? Is that mm. what the story of that mm. is?
1: Yes, I think so.
0: Do they actually get uh-huh. out there?
1: Yes, that's what they did. They replace people in the actual world with robots.
0: So so isn't that like if you think about it, right? If if we don't believe in benevolent Ford and we believe in megalomaniacal Ford, right? Malevolent oh. Ford, yep. Yeah. Um, couldn't Ford be making a real plan on global godhood? Because he can achieve that the moment he gets hosts out into the real world to affect and controls the, them. Yeah. Well, I mean he controls the hosts, right? And if you yeah. think about it, like, if he can get hosts out into the real world and those hosts are indistinguishable from humans and they can start interacting with human society and they have the ability, you know, they're stronger than humans and they're smarter than humans and, you know, Ford can tweak their characteristics, right? And so they can become major influential characters in human, like, organic human um, society, right? It's, yeah. it's re- um So... If he is able to do that, he will basically have attained godhood, not just within the Matrix, but within the world in general, right? Yep. And yep. if I think about it now, you think about last season when Maeve was leaving was thinking about leaving the park, right? What if Maeve mm-hmm. is the only wild card here in that she should have left the park and in leaving the park she was the card that Ford was gonna play to influence the outside world. She's like the first seed that he was going to plant in the outside
1: yeah, world. Yeah, totally.
0: Right? I and, think
1: she's the only one card, yeah.
0: Yeah, because remember last season they talked about how Maeve's... Um, someone had played with Maeve's programming to allow her to kind of wake up, like, you know, like to be aware of, you know, when she was being sort of maintained, I guess, mm-hmm. and put back mm-hmm. into the park. So, you know... One hypothesis, like, given this conversation, one hypothesis is that Maeve was the original host that Ford was trying to send out into the world. And once she yeah. was out there and he had control of the Matrix, he could totally just go about and control her. And and I guess the other thing is that when all these Carl Strand and all these Della Skies rock up to Westworld, Ford could... Like, one of the things that I'm thinking of is that there's all this time that's kind of passed. Like, Bernard, Hale, like, the Helms... Hemsworth brother, right? Whatever his name is. Stub. Yeah, Stubbs. Stubbs, yeah. <laughs> all of those that guys...
4: Stubbs.
0: Ashley Stubbs. you're right, yeah. All of those guys could have been replaced by robots, couldn't they? A- am I going nuts? Am I, like, oh, getting sure. going yeah. to, like...
4: No, 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 Dez, Dez, I think you're onto something. Um... I fear you might be right but I hope you're not because I think that would be a bit I think that would make the show a bit stupid because then,
2: Thanks, then Ford, just,
4: Ford, just becomes, Ford just becomes sort of a parody of a Bond villain you know No I agree I it agree it guy, is lording I... it over robot humanity I mean it... I really hope I, I I fear you're right I hope you're not Yeah look I I agree right like if it gets
0: to that he does become this comical like sort of like moustache twirling villain, right? But yeah. Anyway. Not
1: necessarily. Like, I mean, just because you want power over the world does not mean you're a moustache twirling villain. But yeah.
3: And and does that mean though that is it just Westworld or does he have would he have control over all the worlds? I think all, all the worlds. worlds. All the worlds.
4: I, I think it's all the worlds, particularly because in in the Raj. Um, the hosts have gone off their loops, and it seems that they've gone slightly off their loops in Shogun World as well. So I think we're meant to attribute all that to Ford's handiwork.
0: Yeah, I I think we're meant to attribute pretty much all of the craziness to Ford's handiwork, right? Because last season, we see Dolores blow his brains out at the function. But then, why is everything else going crazy? And remember, like, Maeve comes back into the control center and she's like, what is going on here, right? Right? I, hmm. I think the implication is that the reason why everything has gone off the rails is because Ford is messing with them from the Matrix. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Shall we get back to the episode?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I actually thought that was... those The beginning and the ending, those two little bookends, were, in my mind, the most interesting part of the episode. For sure, <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: but let's, let's get back to the other stuff. So let's talk about the resolution of the whole Shogun World side story. So um, this was mainly thematically about the, you know, Maeve letting her friends choose her, their own fates. The way, like, what I read about... So let's all talk about the resolution of Shogun World, but my thoughts on that are that the way I read those scenes was that they were meant to be read as a direct contrast to Dolores um you know the way they treat the dead in Shogun World right however morbid there's a certain respect for it right um the mm-hmm. way they treat um Maeve treat, respects the I guess the choice of um her companions in Shogun World whether to follow her or not her or not, even though she's aware that it may mean certain doom for them, right? Like, um, I mean, I thought the purpose of those scenes was really to set up that sort of, the dichotomy between Maeve and Dolores and how different they really were. Um, and then even, so, you know, they, they leave Shogun World and they leave behind Musashi and Akane and they take, um, Dragon Tattoo Lady and then, um, Mae finally makes it to the farm, and crucially, there's two things there. We realize that Maeve's daughter has a new mum, and um, we also see that Sizemore has taken the opportunity to call the cops. So, <laughs> what's, what's everybody's... Any, any interesting thoughts on Shogun World and the resolution of that and Maeve's re-
4: reunion with her daughter? Well, this episode was really heavy on free will. Hmm. And so, out of Shogun World, we get, t- we get told twice, um, leave these people to choose their fate, even if it means death. Um, and one question that occurs to me is, when Musashi and Akane choose to stay in Shogun World, um, is, it, is it so much a case of them exercising choice or being trapped in their own narratives. Um, it's not entirely clear to me whether they have exercised any choice at all. It may just be that having been offered the opportunity to get out of their loop, um, they can't. They simply can't. Because mm-hmm. they they haven't gone as full crazy as Dolores, and they certainly haven't gone as off-loop as Maeve. So they're in no position, even if the choice were offered to them, to step outside the narrative that they've been playing out over and over again for who knows how long. Having said that, um, Japanese armistice manages to step out of her narrative because she joins the crew in heading out towards the homestead. So um, it seems that there are those... So it may well be that... So we're left in the state of, I mean, not knowing whether or not these people have the capacity to transcend their loops or whether some are trapped, others able to step outside their loops, or whether, in the end... Uh, Because Ford is directing everything, he's the one making the decision uh, saying, you know, Akane Musashi, you stay your loop. Um, Japanese armistice, you join the crew.
1: So I think um, that there is evidence that they kind of have free will on this. And I think where we can take that is, where we can get that from is when – Maeve in the episode before this one kind of offered the um the gift of knowledge to Akane and when she was doing that sort of telepathic seeing blinking thing um and Akane seemed to have clearly rejected that knowledge so i think that itself was a, was an exercise of choice and that was the choice that Maeve accepted which i guess is why she didn't bring Sakura back to life because Akane wants to live in the world that she's got there. She doesn't want to live in this other reality that Maeve lives in. But on the Maeve-Dolores dichotomy, I, I see that they're setting that up, but it doesn't ring true to me, because Maeve only respects the rights of the people that she has a connection with. She's more than happy to get every soldier, who really is an innocent soldier in the sense that it's just a robot, she's got no trouble getting every soldier to turn their weapons on each other. She can't get them to discard the weapons and just walk away. They've got to turn their weapons on each other and slaughter each other. And they're probably just doing that for special effects purposes. But I, I, I just don't know how much I agree that Maeve is really so different to Dolores because I've seen her treat robot lives as if they don't matter on many occasions. Um, I think so that I love that fight scene between, um, what's his name, Musashi? And, um, and the other guy, that, that, that final part where he falls on a sword and then Musashi cuts off his head so that he doesn't have to suffer um, too long um, was just so amazing. I just thought that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of um, Maeve and the, the and the daughter, like, I think everybody knew the daughter was going to have a new mum, right? They weren't going to leave a little um little girl robot running around in her homestead without a mum, <laughs> without a mum. So she was clearly going to have a new mum. So the fact that Maeve is really smart and didn't foresee that is bizarre. And then secondly, once she did see it and she comprehended the reality of it, the fact that she let her daughter's new mum just sort of... She just left her there to be killed by, you know, by Ghost Nation while she grabs the daughter and runs with the daughter screaming, Mum, Mum, she's screaming for her mother, which is now this other person. Again, just highlights to me that Maeve... I, I just don't know how different she is from Dolores, in a sense. What are your thoughts? Mags? Um. Well, I
3: really liked the ending of Shogun World. I thought that was a really poetic um, ending to that kind of side story. Um, It sort of still made me question whether or not Ford really does have control over the entire dominion, so to speak, of the six worlds, um, and whether he would even care to actually have dominion over each individual life, um, because Mm. he's ultimately quite a selfish being. um, And Maeve, it sort of to me, it kind of read like you know she was hanging on to that hope that her daughter was still her daughter um, and that she was still a mother. And this was sort of the defining moment where that um, final illusion was shattered. So it'd be interesting, I think, to see whether or not this kind of triggers her to be fully um, fully independent um, and and sort of f- fully let go of her of her backstory. Um, and those memories, and sort of make her own. So it's still, like Dolores alludes to that in, um, in referring to her backstory and personality and Teddy's backstory and personality as being, you know, crafted by these human beings, and um, that implies that she has some kind of awareness or ability to step away from that, but her actions, I don't know, maybe she is being fully controlled by Ford, um, but it's, it's interesting because I, I just thought, well, now that Maeve knows for sure that it was really just a story, um, how will she actually react to that?
0: Mm. But I, I guess she always knew that it was really just a story. It's just that she kind of felt that the emotional connection was still real. So I, mm. I, I look, I, to some extent, I still agree with what you've said there, Mags, which is, I think it'll be interesting to see next week how they, whether the daughter has any sense of recollection, whether there is something that runs deeper than memory. I guess um, to bind those those characters together. Um, yeah, so interesting points, everybody. Like, um, can I just respond to what you were saying, Anija, um about um, so? About Maeve and her morality. So, you know, interestingly, what you said, when I was watching the episode, those things really struck struck me as well, right? But I... So sometimes when I watch these shows, there's a certain... You know, like, we talk about the internal logic of the show, right? And sometimes I'm willing to be swept away by the internal, like, kind of... The sense that I get is that the showrunners are trying to sort of like is are trying to make Maeve the good guy for lack of a better word, right? And so sometimes I'm willing, like I see those discrepancies, and I'm like, ah, yeah, you know, you're right. Like, why is Maeve butchering all these robots, all these Japanese robots? Why can't she just like? send them all into the Matrix and liberate all of them? Why does she need mm. to get them to butcher each other in such a horrific way, right? Like, mm. you know, why is it that only Akane and Musashi matter? Like, like what about mm. everybody else there? Like, you know, you have the ability yeah. to help everybody else. Why, why are you letting everybody else die? And then, you know, when she picked up her daughter, the exact thing that rang in my mind was, well, what about the mum? She, like, yeah. on some level, you should sympathize with the mother, or, like, empathize with the mother, because you've That's been <laughs> in her situation, right? Like, you know yep. what's about to happen here, right?
2: Yep. So,
0: absolutely. Like, I, I understand what you're saying, but the sense... Look, and maybe I'll be proven wrong, and this show will prove that it is better written, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> my sense was that the show there's like a little bit of, ah, I know it's inconsistent, but just like forget about it. <laughs> so I of like thing, the you know? grey, you
1: know? Like, I, I prefer grey. Like, whether they've intentionally set up areas of grey or not, Like yeah. I prefer that she's not wholly good. Mm. I, do you know what I mean? I just think that makes her way more real mm. than yeah. someone that was wholly good. Mm. I was
3: just about to say that, actually. I completely agree. Like, mm-hmm. it, if Maeve's meant to be a portrayal of human, of who we really are, I mean, how would you react in that situation as a human being? You'd probably not be, you know, Jesus. So
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, yeah. you're right. You're right, right? Like, in some ways, like, you know, the way I kind of justified it was, well, she's acting in self-defense, right? Because you've got all these Japanese guys running at you with swords, like she's acting in self-defense. but. I mean point taken, right. It, it is like a sort of she's not she's not an angel. So, yeah, <laughs> that's definitely... <laughs> yeah, um,
1: but I think the show does does that really well. So, for instance, it raises the question, is this free will or is it just the loop? And is there really much of a difference? And in the same way, is this person good? Is this person bad? Or are they actually quite similar? Is there really a good or a bad? I, I To me, that's that's what I love about Westworld, just the the moral ambiguity and the ambiguity in every aspect of it, I guess.
4: Yeah, I actually yeah. thought I actually thought this was the the weakest and messiest Maeve episode of the season so far, for for some of the reasons that, that have already been mentioned, but also because um, so many things just don't make sense or fizzle out in a really unsatisfactory way. Um, you know, she gets to the homestead, Ghost Nation attacks. She doesn't she doesn't employ any of her powers um, at all, even though you would think at the, at the, in the hour of greatest mortal danger to her own daughter. Um, she would try. She, 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 and, she wouldn't even. She doesn't even try. And, and, in and the we're lo- left. we left. We're left halfway. We leave her story halfway through this encounter, um, and it's not much of a cliffhanger either. You just sort of sit there going, well, what, what was the point of that?" But more importantly, I think you also sort of take a step back and ask yourself, "Well, what the hell? What was the point of the entire detour to Shogun World? It looked cool, and we got some cool fight scenes, particularly the fight scene between." Tanaka and Masashi, but ultimately what did Maeve get out of that entire detour? She learned that she had these great powers, but the rules for the employment of those powers remain completely unknown and inconsistent. And those are powers that she could have learned about any other way. She didn't have to go to Shogun World in order to acquire and develop those powers. So there's something really sort of messy and hastily or rather unevenly put together about the Maeve arc Particularly in this episode, or rather, this episode exposes something unsatisfactory about the Maeve arc so far.
0: Yeah, look, that's, this is true, right? Like, they made her run away from the Ghost Nation people, and she's literally just spent the last 24 hours. Like, you know, when the samurai runs at her, she doesn't even flinch. She just makes them kill what? each other, right? Like, so it, it, there is that weirdness where she should be at the height of her powers right now, right? Like, she's been exercising them, like, consistently. And then all yeah. of a sudden, like at this point, she just kind of, and then the Ghost Nation guys run run around, right? It's yeah. So he's she,
4: number... she knows she knows their language as well because she speaks to the chief. Exactly. Of the Ghost Nation exactly. Troop uh, well, in Lakota. Yeah, and so she can she can she can command them.
0: Yeah, I mean, unless the revelation is that somehow Ghost Nation is sitting like on another server or something, and so they're not like on the same Matrix wavelength or whatever it is, right? Which...
1: But it doesn't explain why she doesn't try.
0: Exactly. exactly. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Do we think that Sizemore is really calling the cops? Yes. <laughs> really? Uh, the
1: weasel. The weasel <laughs> in
0: him was going to come out one nah, way or another. I believe in Sizemore. It, <laughs> <laughs> I have faith in Sizemore. I think Sizemore is <laughs> going to be the secret hero.
1: Well, who's he calling?
0: Well, I think he will call the cops, but when the cops rock up, he will claim that everybody there is a guest. Right, to to protect them. Maybe I'm giving Size too much credit.
1: (laughs) Even even Armistice with her mechanical arm? (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah, Armistice and, like, Dragon Lady are going to be hard (laughs) to... Anyway... Okay, let's let's move on, shall we? Um, So, to the point of moral ambiguity, let's get to Dolores and Teddy and where I feel like there's no moral ambiguity now. Like, one of the really frustrating things about this season is that I feel like Dolores as a character is getting less and less interesting. Like, I, I don't know, like, I don't know if any other, every, anybody else shares my sentiment, but... Every time I see a Dolores scene, I just feel like, oh, she's going to be unusually cruel and, like, just sort of enact more of her villain plan, basically, right? Like, I kind of feel like that's the subtlety of character isn't really there with Dolores at all this season. And so, you know, like, so yeah, Teddy comes back and he's, like, stone cold and, you know, it's meant to show that Dolores doesn't let him exercise free will. And... I don't know. Like, I mean, yes, th- these scenes kind of keep the plot moving along but is anybody else kind of bored by dolores i am
4: i i would i am generally but the thing is i think we saw a little bit more than the usual shtick this episode because there's that scene at the train station when um dolores is, is questioning the two techies and uh evil teddy steps up and shoots one of them in the head and kills him and there's a there's a momentary flicker across Dolores's face, as if, what have I done? And there is there is a momentary horror at just the possibility that Teddy is a bit too bad, and that's to be contrasted with the look on Angela's face because when Teddy shoots the guy, Angela's like, that's hot. Yeah. Um, so so I think I think there is a moment during in, in this episode when. Dolores comes face to face with the full ramifications of well of what she's done Now, she hasn't she probably hasn't absorbed them but she does feel i think a slight twinge of regret that she might have made a mistake here making Teddy as evil as he is now mm, mm.
1: So I, I might be the biggest Dolores apologist in the whole world, but guys, just just imagine for a second that you found out that you found out that that this other race, this other race of beings, created you and made you into this kind, open, loving, generous, sweet person, only so that you could be raped and brutalized over and over again, so that you could watch your parents be killed in front of you over and over again for their. Entertainment and amusement over and over again. Wouldn't you also want to annihilate them? Because I would.
3: Remind <laughs> <laughs> me never to get on your bad side, Anja. I don't want to be annihilated. <laughs> that, that's, that, that's,
4: that's probably true, but it's not particularly interesting. I mean, pure <laughs> event stories. <laughs> Charles <Gerald, laughs> comes in. <laughs> pure event stories are fun, but. I think in relatively small doses, if this is just going to be 10 hours of unrelenting one note revenge story, then I think that will um, turn people off her arc. And I think it has already done so. The critical consensus seems to be that she is significantly less interesting this season than she was in season one. Now, hopefully we'll see more notes injected um, into the character of Dolores in the second half of the season and certainly Evan Rachel Wood is more than capable of hitting those notes if she's if she's asked to do so. But right now, if this is just a Charles Bronson revenge story, well, there are many examples of that, some even done better. Um, and so, you know, it may be right to say that if, you, if one has experienced what Dolores has experienced, one would be acting out in exactly the same way. But narratively, that still leads you up a cul-de-sac, I think. Mm.
3: I think for me, part of the problem is, and the reason why um, some people might be feeling bored or frustrated is, it's just taking a really long time for the story to develop. Yes. Um, So, you know, like we, this week, the main, um, the main plot line for Dolores was the train and getting the train to, you know, (coughs) headquarters and then blowing up the train Um, And that was an entire episode. So they just need to move it on a little bit, I think.
0: Yeah, look, I I, I tend to agree with that. I I think part of the problem with Dolores is that, like, there's not that much for her to do. Like, I mean, for her, her major beats are, like, sort of plot-related. She needs to do X and be at Y or whatever it is, right? And be villainous at the same time. So as a result, like, it's kind of... It's not like the first season while where she was going through this intense personal journey, right? They're like, If you think about it, it's that emotional journey, the internal journey that is actually interesting to the viewer. Not the sort of, I blew up
4: a base with a trade. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, part, part of the problem may also be that the flash forward, because we know the writers have written themselves into a point where they, they have to get to this particular point in the story where... Yeah. All these hosts are are, are, are floating in the lake. And so Dolores has to hit these various points leading up to that journey rather than sort of organically revealing more and more of herself as she did in season one. Hmm. So the fact that her her arc is so plot-heavy and plot-dependent might be detracting from her as a character. Mm. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay, so I I think the
0: final point that we should talk about is probably the man in black and mm-hmm. his daughter. Um I I get the feeling that this, this season they're trying to like reverse the roles a little bit of Man in Black and Dolores. I I also it's mildly more interesting than the Dolores storyline, but I don't know. I don't know. Mags, any because thoughts? we
1: know nothing about it. We know nothing about what his motivations are at the moment or what he's trying to do, so we can't care that much about something we know nothing about.
0: Yeah, like, mm-hmm. I, I don't actually know what he's doing. Like, he just seems to be playing Ford's game, right? That This is only motivation. Like, I don't know. He, he's a weird guy. Like, it's... Yeah.
3: But it's also unclear what his relationship has been with Ford. I think that's one area that they haven't really explored in the series so far. I mean, you just have to assume somehow there's some kind of deep relationship between him and Ford and potentially Arnold slash Bernard if if that person actually existed in the real world. Um, but it's really unclear. And also it's really, um, it's also s- uh, uh, quite unclear at the moment as well, the motivation of his daughter. I mean, we got a little bit of that this episode, but it's, I don't know, you know, how much do we trust what she what she actually said to him and how much do we actually trust in the conversation that they had with each other?
0: Yeah, I, I think the thing with his daughter, um, whose name is Gerald, remind me. Emily, is that correct? Emily. Yes. 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 <laughs> Gerald, the holder of the names.
2: <laughs> no one else
0: <laughs> knows. But, <No>. uh, <laughs> but, like... Do, do we actually buy her reasoning that she's there to, like, get her dad out of the theme park? I think that's a load of croc. Like, she was clearly... Like, when you first see her, she has the notebook where she's looking at a map, and she's got the Delos symbol. I think she's searching for something else there, right? Like, I think that she wants to use her dad to find something else. That that's That's my take on it. Um, I'm not massively intrigued by it though, which is probably a problem, but (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um...
1: So theoretically, I think the idea that all she wants to do is save her dad or stop him from pretty much killing, uh, making, uh, committing suicide by robot. I think theoretically that makes a lot of sense because children, you know, do um, treasure their parents no matter how um, tumultuous the relationships have been, and she's already lost a mother. But I think you're absolutely right in that that's not what's going on in this show, in this plot. Um, she, she's just as smart as her father is, and just the way her father playing her and has his own motivations that are more important to him ultimately than um, sort of repairing this bond right here, right now. Um, shes I'm sure she's
0: got hers. Mm. Mm. Jerry, any, any last thoughts on the Man in Black?
4: Look, the Man in Black has long been a point of frustration in this show because he seems to speak in code. I mean, last season it was the map, this season it's the game, Exactly. And oh my god. Cases, <laughs> in both cases, um, you don't find out very much of anything until near the very end, and, it's, it, and it takes a while to get anywhere. So he, um, so you know, as fine an actor as Ed Harris is, the fact of the matter is, the way he's written is utterly obscure, and you sort of scratch your head, thinking, where is this going, and what's the point, and why is he being such an obscure? Like...
0: <laughs> it's For me, it's kind of like, what? I know, okay, I guess from a dramatic purpose, from a sort of, like, building intrigue purpose, like, you know, from a purely sort of dramatic purpose, he needs to be obscure. But if you think about it, he actually has no... Like, what's his rationale as a character to be... <laughs> like, why would you talk like that? What's wrong with you? Are you a human or are you a host? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I mean, if he turns yeah, he out to just... be a host, that will be brilliant, right? It will be like, oh, man, that makes sense. That's why he was speaking in code all the time. But who speaks <laughs> like that? <laughs>
1: well, don't forget, he is able to repair gunshot wounds to him very quickly, just like the way the hosts are with that laser kind of gun thing. And he does seem to have insane amounts of strength for a very old man in hand-to-hand combat with these young, strong robots. So, And the original Man in Black in the original Westworld movie was
0: a robot. Oh! Oh, interesting. Oh, because he was your winner, right? He was your. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm, twist. Twist. Yeah. Well, what if? Ah, oh, look. I mean, there's heaps of what ifs, right? <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah. What if his his What if one of the other Delos facilities that Emily is looking for is her dad's brain, right? To get another copy of her dad's brain.
4: I don't know. <laughs> but, but you've got to say, like, if that were the case. Again, you would just—I I, would—I would just pick up my remote control and throw it at the TV because you'd be like, "Well, hold on, there, there are only so many times you can play na- narrative tricks on your audience before completely losing them. You're just sort of shifting, shifting the goalposts and shifting the rules of the reality over and over again in order to trick your audience. You're not trying—you know—it's as if the showrunners. Are secondarily interested in telling a story; they're more interested in playing tricks on the audience.
2: Mm. I think
4: that would be—I think that would be a big mistake if uh, if the Man in Black were a, were a host. Yeah, but you know, it's very—it is actually very possible. The thought certainly crossed my mind as early as episode one of this season. Yeah, and if you have that combined with um, uh, Robert Ford being Doctor Evil planning to re- lord it over robot humanity. that would be an absolutely catastrophically bad ending for the show and this season.
0: Look, I mean, I I think the way we're talking about it is in a very sort of overt sort of way, right? Uh, My, my sense is that uh, as I was theorizing that my sense is that they will probably, it may end up being sort of Robert Ford being overlord of humanity, but done in a slightly more subtle way, I guess. Um, yeah, my bet would probably be that the man in black is human still, but um Robert Ford, lord's over humanity. Anyway, we'll see. We will see. Yeah. Um Okay, any any other thoughts before we close out for tonight? Okay. Uh
1: no. <laughs> did you watch the preview for next week?
0: I have not. I I'm, 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 I'm so don't. woefully underprepared. Did you did you guys watch it? <laughs> What sort of we podcast did, is this? What sort of pop culture enthusiasts are these? Yeah, no,
4: we, we, did, we, we did watch the preview, and it doesn't tell you very much. In, in that way, it's actually very similar to a full episode of Westworld.
1: <laughs> oh, come on, uh, so harsh. I love the show. Uh, I, I don't know, I still think it's really good, and I, I think wherever it goes, it will be satisfying and rewarding.
0: Yeah, Okay, yeah, I, I probably agree with that. I, like, I I still like the show. Like, it's still intriguing, right? So, I'm definitely mm. bought in. Yeah. Yeah,
3: and Maeve is still my favourite character.
2: <laughs> I think we've got
0: we got. I know that Anitra is really Mags I am is Dolores pro Dolores. Max is pro Max is pro Maeve. Jerry is pro-man-in-black. <laughs> and... No, no, no. I, I,
4: I'm, I'm no, pro-Bernard. You're pro-Bernard. Yeah, not... I'm pro size I are pro-Game of Thrones. You're pro-Game no. of Thrones.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Jerry is pro-Tyrion Lannister. He's in, like, yeah. Game of Thrones world. Yeah, no, yeah, who you, are you me. pro? Sizemore! Uh, Sizmoor's no. my no. man! <laughs> I thought it was Felix. No, no, Felix is an idiot. No, <laughs> I'm
2: the one who likes Felix. <laughs> yeah, I've
4: got to say, Felix, Felix is not doing us brothers any... Time. He's not making us No, <laughs> he makes Asians... Yeah, it's not, it's not a good look. Um, okay, so, okay,
0: one last thing before we go. It's something that I've been meaning to talk about since our first podcast. Why do... Like, what are the security guards wearing in Westworld? They all seem to be wearing heavy body armor, and all of them get killed. (laughs) Like, what is going on? Like, these are the things that really trouble me when I watch Westworld, right? Why? Like, they might as well be wearing t-shirts. Like, (laughs) why? Why? Why, because the
1: guns can't kill them? Is that why? Wondering why they're wearing heavy body armor? Isn't it in case things go wrong?
0: This, yeah, the guards, right? So <laughs> yeah, they wear, that's exactly <laughs> right, but things go wrong, and then the <laughs> armor does nothing! It does like, nothing! They do wrong, and the armor does nothing. Yeah, They've done nothing, they just get... It is pretty useless. Yeah. Like, and even not... Okay, so, I'm willing to suspend disbelief if the hosts take the sort of machine guns that the security guards are using, and they're shooting each other with the machine guns, and the machine guns penetrate their armor. But the hosts take, like, you know... 18th century Smith and Wessons and like shoot a guy with like modern body armor and the guy with the modern uh, body armor instantly dies like what what's going on anyway this is one of my major frustrations with Westworld <laughs> why why are they wearing the armor why why are they
4: dressed like that <laughs> anyway so well, i think i think i think we actually do at some point have to discuss work conditions at Delos Corporation, because obviously they don't take good care of their employees. <laughs> most of the, a lot of the budget has been directed to this off-book R&D to, to bring Jim Delos back to life. That's probably burning through, through cash, Elon Musk style. And obviously they, 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 uh, they, they just haven't been able to, uh, to divert sufficient investment into, uh, into occupational health and safety. Yeah.
3: Mm, let's take them to the Fair Work Commission.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And Carl <laughs> Strand, as the head of their security,
0: why is he walking around the first man into an unknown area? Like, <laughs> he, he, he walks Because he knows into body armour
3: is ineffective. <laughs>
0: well, he, he doesn't wear body. He's the only one who doesn't wear body armour.
3: <laughs> he knows the truth.
0: Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> oh. Anyway, on that note, um, I think that's it weird for this week. Weird note to end on. Yeah. Thanks, Darren. It's really
2: weird. It's note just been to burning,
0: like on. burning a hole in me, right? Like, what is going on with this? <laughs> anyway, on that note, thank you very much, everybody, for another really fun episode this week of Westworld discussion. Um, we will be back um, before the next episode of Westworld. We are going to um, have a quick chat about. Solo, a Star Wars story, which I'm actually, Yay! yeah, I'm super looking forward to it because my sense is that Gerald
4: hates Star Wars. <laughs> <And> <laughs> no, no, I quite like Star Wars. I'm just not, I just, I'm just not a, I'm just not an uber fan. Oh, okay. Well, I know that
0: Mags is not an uber fan of Star Wars either, um, and. I know that I actually quite liked it, which I think is against the grain. So that should be an interesting interesting discussion. Um, Explain yourself, Dan. Explain yourself. (laughs) Exactly. I need to wear some body armor, but it'll do nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. On that note, thanks again, everybody, um, for a great podcast this week. And um, we'll see everybody soon.
2: Hey. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.